what we realized in that process was we couldn't do it alone. We were, it was a sort of classic business make or buy decision that we had to make. Were we going to find the computers and the software and the data to sort of drive our ability to now take care of what is now thousands of customers? Or were we going to find a partner to give us a level footing? Market by market, the solar industry is crossing the chasm from early adopters to the early mass market. And one thing is clear. What got us here won't get us there. The days of installation crews doing their own service work are nearly non-existent. And today, customers expect more. The truth is, traditional operations and maintenance is, well, reactive. The future of solar is proactive. I'm Nico Johnson, host of Suncast, where I've interviewed hundreds of clean energy leaders in an effort to guide your career and company through this energy transformation. This is our latest educational series, and it's focused on how we can leverage the post-installation customer experience to move beyond simple O&M and find meaningful ways to delight and entice the next wave of clean energy enthusiasts through proactive engagement. In this episode three of our series, we'll hear from one of the Northeast's longest-standing renewable energy developers, Kevin Schulte, CEO and co-founder of GreenSpark Energy. The loyalty with which these co-founders built their team, mission, and reputation in the market is at the heart of their three decades-plus track record delivering high-value renewable assets to their clients in the Northeast and increasingly beyond. You'll hear from this field-tested veteran how to build trusted partnerships and how, quite often, those very trusted partnerships are what help you scale while keeping your promises. Whether you're experiencing the pains of a growing solar business or just starting out and want to learn from the pros, I hope you'll subscribe to the show and join in this important conversation as we explore the future of solar. The Beyond O&M series is a production of Suncast Media and is brought to you in partnership with Omnidian. Kevin, you have a very interesting and in some ways really unique perspective on and trajectory in the renewables sector. I'm using the word renewables very specifically in this case. And I'd love to get some backstory for those who maybe don't know anything about Kevin or GreenSpark. Give me a bit of insight into how you found out about, sort of decided to dedicate your career to clean energy. I went to college. I went to James Madison to be a doctor. So I started in pre-med and with a minor in physics and math. And my first college class was an environmental chemistry class with a professor named Dr. Jamie Weinbrake. And in that class, he put a pictograph of the greenhouse gas effect up on the screen. And I looked at that thing and I'm this bright-eyed, bushy-tailed 18-year-old. And I said, well, holy hell, there's, this is a really big problem. And mm. so I went to couple of weeks of class and this thing had seared in my mind and I took my first test for him and I, I broke the curve on the test. All the other kids threw paper at me when they found out who broke the curve on the test. So I ended up in the professor's office, Dr. Weinberg's office for six hours talking about climate change and the greenhouse gas effect. And I changed my major then and focused on energy, the environment, and I have uh, minors in economics and public policy. And so it just was very quick to me that this was a global problem that I could be a part of. And so 
I studied in college. I went over to Malta for two summers. I studied wind for the archipelago. I wrote a thesis, designed a wind farm at Mount Storm, West Virginia, which is now an operating wind farm owned by Virginia and Dominion Power. Wow. And then I wrote a letter and a resume for every company in the United States that was a member of the Wind Energy Association, American Wind Energy Association. And I got a job with Res. Res Americas. Res Americas. I was their wow. fourth, I was their fourth US employee. They're now massive. We built like a couple hundred megawatts of of wind farms. And I helped develop a couple hundred megawatts of wind farms in, in a couple of years. And the Friday after 9-11, my co-founders and I were on the phone and we were just like, we've been in this thing for two, three years now, and we're dinosaurs in this business. We may as well go start our own thing. And so we we did the following spring, we launched what is now Green Spark as sustainable energy developments, and we were off to the races. You said that was the Friday after 9-11? Friday after 9-11. You know, I tell that story often only because like the dates resonate. I'm not a hundred percent sure that there was a link between that event and us starting a company. It was just like that, that date to coincide. Yeah. What else was coinciding for you and your business partners around that time then? What was coalescing at that point? Well, my partner, George and I spent, so when when I was at Res, I got the two co-founders that are still with me, George and Ernie, they were working for subcontractors of mine Mm -hmm. in the space. And they would come stay in my house in Austin, Texas, which is where Res was then. And we were talking about what is the thing in the world we want to work on, Mm -hmm. right? And George was like a geography to history guy and Ernie was a health guy and at least is what they studied in school. And I was into this renewable energy thing. And, and we, you know, we were talking about all of the things that were going on in the world and all of the problems and should we work on poverty or should we work on social justice or should we work on this? It was like, well, we're all in this business. Let's go for this thing. And so it really was that those set of conversations that led us together and started having us write a, a business plan at that time. So it kind of just coalesced around the innocence and the youthfulness of like, how do I make the world a better place with your buds? And we turned it into a career for sure. We've turned it into a beautiful business, I think, and an opportunity for employment for a lot of people. So it's been quite a journey. Early days, you stuck with their knitting and stayed in the wind sector, right? Yeah, we started as a utility scale wind consultant. So at one point we had, you know, the Northeastern United States was like a pin cushion of Met towers mm-hmm. that we were installing from Maine to Nevada and all across the country. We're installing Met towers for people, but really focused in the Northeast where our people were. And so we did a tremendous amount of, you know, Met tower installations. And then we're analyzing data, helping people find sites, almost all of the wind in New York state we were the first guys on the site to sort of put the towers up and wow. get them started. I don't take credit for all of that, but that's just the correlation to, I think it was like the first 1100 megawatts of wind in New York state. We put Met Towers on Amazing. all those years ago. Yeah. That's phenomenal. So I guess a couple of questions come to mind for me. The first is just sort of circumstantial, but you were in Austin for res. Why move back to the Northeast? Huh. Texas was a huge wind market at the time. It was, but Governor Pataki, at the time was saying, let's do crazy forward thinking things. Our Repu- the Republican governor of New York, Governor Pataki was saying, let's do all this forward looking renewable energy stuff in New York. And then more importantly, is like the one partner that had any, you know, roots in the ground was his girlfriend was in college in Albany. And so 
like he was in New York. And so we kind of self-justified around that, those roots that like New York was the spot to be. And then, you know, the story just kind of went from there. The truth was I always wanted to go to Colorado. And so it just, you know, we got rooted here and it, it never happened. Isn't it ironic that that's where Rez is now? <laughs> well, when I quit, when I quit and I told my boss that I was one of the reasons I was quitting was to chase a woman. And he said, I'll race you. I'll race you to Colorado because they were already talking about moving to Colorado so then. And I said, I think I'll beat you there. And I didn't. <laughs> you know, one thing I wanted to touch on real quick before we kind of get into your current business model is I think a lot of what we've seen in the industry, you 20 plus years, me almost 18, 17 half years in the industry is what's old is new again. One of the things that few people really understand is how much of the wind industry, the solar and energy storage industry has not only leveraged and le but learned from. In 2011, you were the inaugural, your company was the inaugural community wind award winner, correct? Tell me about, like, I think most people wouldn't even realize that there's a term called community wind, and yet it's more than a decade old. Yeah. I mean, in 2004, I was driving to look at a wind farm site in the area that I live in now. And I came across a 250 kilowatt Furlander wind turbine at the factory next door to where my office is currently located. And I met the entrepreneur who had installed that. And I fell in love with this concept. Mm -hmm. So distributed wind. So wind, just like all, all of us in the solar space, putting you know, solar panels on homes and, and at businesses and things of that nature, we started by doing that in 2004, we started doing that with wind turbines. And so yeah. we got hired to install the first wind turbine at a ski resort in the world at Jiminy Peak. And we finished that project in 2007. And the CEO, Brian Fairbank was sort of board advisor to us at that point. And he made fun of us because after we installed this wind turbine and we knew where we were going, we knew that we were going to install distributed wind. That was where we were headed. But 70% of our revenue was coming from installing MET towers and doing wind energy studies. And so we said, well, we're going to cut that business altogether, 70% mm -hmm. of our revenue. And we're going to go 100% for this distributed wind thing. So we did that in 2007. And then over the next five years, we were the largest distributed wind installer in the country. Wow. And we did projects from Washington State, Kansas, Indiana. And all across the Northeast, really centered in the Northeast in Massachusetts, where we installed at one point, I don't know, 70, 80% of the wind turbines in Massachusetts. Is it any surprise then that Massachusetts was really the bellwether for virtual net metering for solar? <laughs> right? I mean, there's a lot of these building blocks that really you guys in the wind industry put in place for us to build on top of. Well, I would say the biggest one, and like there was no solar industry in New York. Mm -hmm. And I sat in the now indicted Senator. George Maziar's office and wrote net metering for New York state. And we got that bill passed for two megawatts of net metering, including virtual net metering. And that became the solar industry in New what York year? state. That would have been 2007. Mm -hmm. Wow. And we wrote it for wind. We didn't write it for solar. But then when Obama brought on the stimulus package, the ARA package in 2009, and there became a federal tax credit for solar at scale. Now, all of a sudden, those two things converged and New York became a solar market. And so, you know, the, but the building blocks were interconnection in net metering, both of which we had a hand in getting in New York state. And those laws are now replicated in Pennsylvania and Rhode Island and New Jersey yeah. and some other places. So it was really foundational to the market to be involved in those early policy conversations. 
Amazing. How much wind are you doing today? None. None. We quit. Yeah, we- I still have I still have all my wind energy trophies behind me, but I don't do it when the last wind turbine we installed was for one of our favorite customers, which is the sovereign nation. That's the Seneca Nation of Indians here in Western New York. We've done wind, mm-hmm. we've done solar, we've done community solar, done all kinds of cool projects with them. We did a two megawatt turbine for them. I think we finished it in 2018. And the reason for it is like Truthfully, a single distributed wind turbine is more economically viable than solar. Wow. Just the okay. truth. Yeah. Obviously, well sighted and stuff like that. But the challenge is can you replicate it, right? Can you build a business by doing it over and over and over and over again? And, and can you keep consumer confidence? So if I'm going to sell a solar farm and say, hey, in six months, you know, business owner, you talk to a business owner, you say, in six months, I'll have your solar online. And then you say, okay, for the same million bucks, I can have your wind turbine online in 36 months. Like, uh oh, you know, and so to create that confidence, to create that rhythm, we switched to solar. And as much as I love wind, I mean, I have a wind turbine tattooed on my arm. Like, as much as I love it, like from a business model perspective in the distributed space, it's different and more challenged. It's a cottage industry, and if you could build a business around that cottage concept, I think it's awesome and do a lot of it. But for us, we wanted to build a growth business that just created more scale and flow. We're going to come back to that. It's a very important element, I think, of the conversation we're going to have today. But first, as you surveyed the landscape, you had been serving with Community Wind and to corporate clients and communities. You'd been servicing that sector with distributed wind and thinking about how does solar play a role here? What you just outlined is a way to effectively go after that market at scale. Could you just outline for me sort of the evolution that you've seen with regards to the CNI customer journey, if such a thing exists? So at my core, right, I'm a builder, right? Mm-hmm. And in our core sort of statement at Greenspark is build energy together, mm-hmm. right? But it's all focused on building, we've been builders. And so, but what happened in the community wind space, which we just talked about, which I think is really dictates the answer to your question, is we became extremely innovative in how do you finance these projects. And so I think that the customer journey in distributed solar is really marked and chased well by how did they get the money to do this thing, right? Whether it's a residential solar system or a large CNI solar system. And so that to me is where we gained access to the solar market was our expertise in financing and financing distributed wind in innovative ways. For our early stage CNI customers, you're always having this conversation like, is this a cash deal? Like, do you just have, you know, okay, we're going to do a megawatt of solar. Do you have a, a million and a half bucks or 2 million bucks in the early days, right? To build yeah. this thing. And we'll get you some tax credits and some grant money and all this sort of stuff to bring down how much cash you need. But like, because there wasn't anybody just jumping up and down in 2011, 12, 13 and saying, you know, let me do this. And so then, and you would go to their banks and they would just look at you like you were nuts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Tell me about this asset that I can't repossess. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I think, you know, the evolution of finance has made for the opportunity for customers to come into the fold. Right. And I think it still struggles, right? In this space from like a 50 kilowatt to a six, 700 kilowatt solar system. Like there's still a dearth of good financing options in that space. But once you get bigger, it's sort of super easy now. And once you go smaller, it's sort of super easy now. But in that middle, it's still a challenge space. But those with the will and some cash heavy businesses are still doing it. Then that's the good part, right? That's yeah. 
we love that space. We don't do enough in that space. We want Rochester to be, you know, roofs to be covered in solar panels, but financing has slowed our, our opportunity there, even though both internally at GreenSpark and externally in the market, it is the best set of economics, fundamental payback and IRR, but financing, if you go to a business and say, give me a million bucks and they could say, but I want to buy another CNC machine or this, that, or the other. And that pays for itself better. Revenue producing, yeah. It's it's challenging. So then on top of that, I would say financing is a thing and that gets people into the business. But the evolution and the maturity of the product set in the space has really dictated a better journey for newer customers, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, I can't tell you how many inverter companies and module manufacturers and things that we've had to churn through in order to come to a set of products that we just feel really comfortable with selling to our customers. You know, because foundationally, I think for our company, the difference, and I don't know if this is a different for other company or not, but like up to and including, you know, yesterday, I still take great shock that somebody is willing to invest their money to let my company build this thing for them. (laughs) That investment in me and us and my people is like so foundationally important that like, I want them to be happy forever. Yeah. Right. Like, how did you do that? I can't believe to this day, I can't believe you're willing to invest this money in my company and all of that stuff, right? Better products, quality products, being able to take care of them is because I still get shocked when someone says, even it's a $25,000 residential system, holy hell, you're willing to invest in, in this thing that I created. Amazing. So hardware is one thing, and that has been I mean, we've seen prices decline. We've seen mean time between failure dramatically improve. We've seen efficiencies improve. But, you know, the finance side really was a linchpin. We could name example after example throughout the Northeast and across the United States of where finance unlocked markets, both for Resi and CNI. Where have you seen sort of post-sale, there's this whole asset management aspect that is relatively cookie cutter for residential and even for utility. Like it's, they're dramatically different businesses, but relatively cookie cutter. And I think CNI is one of those sectors where almost nothing is cookie cutter. How has asset management in particular changed over the years and allowed you to be able to think about scale? I think going back to the source of the investment, we started our asset management journey as just like an offshoot, right? We, mm-hmm. The systems we installed in 2012 was like, hey, construction guy or construction person that works for GreenSpark, you're not that busy today. Go over there and take care of this thing, right? Yeah. And they were perfectly capable of taking care of that thing, but it wasn't programmatic. It wasn't driven. It wasn't sustainable. And we realized over time that in order for us to regenerate success, right, then you had to really create a truly incredible customer experience. So So what I did was I took my business partner, Ernie, who is quite literally the nicest person I've ever met in my life. And I said, you, because of your ethos as the nicest guy I've ever met, are going to be in charge of making sure the customers are happy now and forever. And he took in his first year of our customer care division, he took our average response time. This was average commercial and residential from problem being alerted to us to fixed and taken care of was 59 days. And he took it to 13 days in less than 12 months. That's because of who he is and the department he built and all that kind of stuff. And so that's been a really incredible journey. And 
what we realized in that process was we couldn't do it alone. We were, it was a sort of classic business make or buy decision that we had to make. Yeah. Were we going to hire the computer, find the computers and the software and the data to sort of drive our ability to now take care of what is now thousands of customers? Or were we going to find a partner to give us a level footing? And we debated that decision for well over a year and found in the end that it was it was more sustainable for us to buy, to find a partner to do it. And so, so we did. Kevin, you've made some profound changes, not just for the industry around you, but over the years in your own company, the way you operate, the way you scale. Part of what I heard in the business pivots that you've chosen is how do we actually make a bigger impact? How do we choose a business model? Deciding to let go of the tattoo on your arm and say, I'm going to set wind aside because it looks like solar is going to actually be faster. You said in another opportunity that I got a chance to hear you speak, you said that you as someone who's from Southern Baptist roots, I heard you say, I committed my life to, and what you said next surprised me, you said to climate action or something along those lines, right? And I thought, wow, like that's darn near religious speech right there, right? But you've committed your life to climate action. You've committed your life to changing the way we think about our carbon footprint, our impact on greenhouse gas emissions. As you said, like you instantaneously knew you needed to switch your major. So I want to ask you sort of a philosophical question as you have thought about the scale of your business. You've adopted B Corp principles. Your people are literally at the heart of the business and the way you've structured it. What's more important to build a business that addresses climate change or to build a business that addresses the need for a fertile work environment, a place that creates diversity and equity? And can they coexist? You're touching on the like existential debate in my head as I sit here most days, as I do research every night. I've been asking myself the question, what's more important, being a choice employer in a world of you know, places to work that are not joyful and, and not equitable and all those other things, or to continue my fight against climate change? And so I don't have an answer mm-hmm. because I'm searching, right? I have concluded that I don't think there is an answer, mm. but I am still searching and I still ask the question regularly. But I think just to take you back to the religion, like, I don't remember who the first person to say these words were, but these are ones that sit with me regularly. And that's that the earth is actually baking and it's baking because we put it in an oven. We humans, by our practices and our choices, did that. And so I am always tied to the thought process that a human caused problem can be a human solved problem. That's just what it feels like is my job. And then you know, I had kids somewhere along the way, and I really believe in handing them and maybe grandkids one day, like a better world to live in. And so to me, I've boiled it down into these two concepts. One is, right, continue the climate fight and scale. If you believe in the climate problem, you do not have a choice to not grow your business. It's not a choice. More work needs to be done. I'm not going to rely on someone else to start a new business in Rochester that's going to do my work. Like, I'm going to find more people to come do this work with me because maybe I think we figured something out about how to employ people and how to be effective in this fight. And then the other side of it is I believe in an evolved form of capitalism. And I want to hand that gift to my kids. I want to give them the opportunity to go and live in a work where. 
employers attempt to create a joyful working environment, meaningful financial contributions to people's family, caring for their health on all forms, you know, from financial health to spiritual health and everything in between and all of that sort of stuff. And so, great. My mission has doubled in sort of what the hell, let's go for it. Yeah. You're one of the founding members of an organization in our midst in the solar industry that fundamentally believes a lot of the things that B Corp believes care for the companies in the organization, take care of one another, leverage the strength of the organization. I'm referring to the Amicus Cooperative in its various forms, both the O&M and the broader sort of purchasing collective. I'd like to hear your thoughts as a founding member of Amicus. I can't remember if you were a board member, but talk about the, the ethos of the Amicus type of company, what it means. And further beyond that, because not every Amicus company is a B Corp, why you chose to the route for B Corp. It's a very strong commitment, a high threshold, they intentionally so, threshold of pain for getting qualified. It's because they want to ensure that folks that say that they are, in fact, a benefit corporation are committed to the benefit they claim. Can you talk a bit about that and the fundamental kind of as a tag on to what you were just saying? Yeah. I mean, so, so just start with Amicus. So my solar business was really started when a, a guy named Sam Mason, who works at Namaste Solar now, in Colorado, showed up on my doorstep in 2011 and said, listen, I'm going to come work. We were a wind company, right? We weren't doing solar yet. He said, I'm going to come work for you. You can choose to pay me or not. And Sam brought with him this spirit from Namaste, which was foundational to Amicus, of which we are not a founding member. We were okay. in the, the sort of second group that came in. They founded in 2011. We came in, in, I think, 2012 or 2013. And I am a board member. And so what I found immediately was at that time, there's 30 members or 20 members. And all of these people, as we would get together for a retreat, don't just view the question of how do I find high quality solar equipment to ensure my customers continue to trust me because I'm giving them the good stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But they also believe that businesses were to be run, I don't know, in a different way where people are cared for more. And so that circle was just really impactful from early day. It's always an important and joyful moment. I think this is for any person. When you find other people that can empathize with a position that you think you're unique on, mm. right? So I thought I was unique running a business with my friends and you know, making our first business decision was to get healthcare for everybody. And you know, you're sort of like, you make these decisions, you think I'm, we're unique. And you find other people that aren't. And so you're like, great, this is a thing. And so not only do I want to grow my business, but I want to grow Amicus's business and, mm -hmm. I, and all of that sort of stuff because it's so impactful. And so all of these businesses, not all are B Corps, but they are all what we call values-led solar businesses. And what does that mean? They have to go through a regular assessment to get into Amicus where they are checking boxes like how do they care for their people? Are they sustainably growing? Just mission and, and values alignment in order to be a part of the buying cooperative that is sort of Amicus's revenue system, right? right. And so that, that circle was whole. We were at the time we joined Amicus starting down the B Corp path. But man, when you got into Amicus at that time, it was like their people were pounding the table like, we need more B Corps, we need more B Corps. And so we, we did, we certified about a year after, year or so after we joined Amicus, but we had already started that process. And 
And that's been an incredible thing. We had a board of a local HMO here in Rochester where the president of the board said, why did you choose, our name was still Sustainable Energy Developments when they chose, why did you choose Sustainable Energy Developments? And the reason was because they're a local B Corp. So the connection then becomes, if you treat people well, if you're good to the planet, if you're involved in the community, you also can get more business. Yeah. Whoa. Right? Whoa. Now this is a big deal, mm. right? Because now you're connecting your customers that care with the people you care for and the product that we think is doing a good thing for the world. And, and when you do that, our growth, we've grown something on the order of five to 600% since we certified as a B Corp uh, over that time. Yeah, That's phenomenal. Well, one of the things that sticks out for me with Amicus and your connection to it and what you just described about the ethos of Amicus, I loved how you just you just enunciated here, finding high quality equipment. And I would say providing a high quality service to ensure customers continue to trust you and giving them quote, the good stuff. And gosh, that, what a cool t-shirt that would be actually like sunshine <laughs> with the words, the good stuff. <laughs> so earlier, and I want to come back to a comment you made, you said within the context of building out your, your O&M business that you realized that you couldn't scale unless you went to out and sort of found these third-party partners. Now, in my mind, as a company scales, they find partners for lots of things. And that's one of the things that Amicus helps provide a filter for, right? In terms of the way that you align yourself in partnerships. Can you talk a bit then about the, and you don't have to get into specifics if you don't want to, but the generalities around choosing a partner that is going to actually deliver on the promises you are making, even the performance guarantees perhaps that you're giving to your customers rely on being there, hopefully in a proactive way, not just like the Maytag repairman showing up because something broke, right? In many cases, the scenario where your business partner took the average response time from 59 to 13 days, in many cases, in the way our business was built, it is a monitoring system that is reactively pinging and saying, this thing is broken, let's go fix it. Can you talk about the way that you see that evolving and how, that, how you incorporated that into thinking about the scale you want to achieve for distributed solar in the next five to 10 years? So let me just point back to Amicus one more mm -hmm. time. Yeah. And I'm just going to point back to them because in difference to many companies, certainly internally, what we've used Amicus to do is the, the fundamental due diligence on the product set mm. we're going to deliver to a customer. And so I have now a 70 company right vetting system mm. for like, Am I putting good solar modules and good inverters and good racking systems into the market? And that starts it all. Because you know, if you put crap into the market, you're going to have much bigger problems over That's time, right. Right? That's right? And so we have never allowed ourselves to fall prey to that. And when we got into solar, I didn't know anything about solar. So to have even then these 20 or 25 companies saying, this is the right stuff to put in the market was just a good validation. So yeah. we are actually committed. We buy 100% of our gear through Amicus Partners. And that's a commitment we've made. Not all the Amicus members are quite there, but that's a commitment we've made because of, I don't have an internal R&D team that's telling me what the next widget is that we should get. I have an external one in Amicus and in that collective group of people, and we use it often. And so it starts there. It starts with, did I put a quality piece of equipment together? We know that our stuff works. Then you get into the next question, which is, does it work the way I said it was going to work? Hmm. Yes. Right? And does it work the way I sold it to work? And therein lies the moment 
at GreenSpark where we recognized we needed to create or transform our vision of how to care for these customers over a longer period of time because we saw that there was a gap, right? Mm -hmm. There was a gap between what I promised to my customers and what they were getting. And we didn't have the answer to was it, well, was it snowier or was it, mm. you know, it was it a downtime for maintenance or was there dust? We didn't have an answer. So we started to think about, okay, how are we going to A, get that answer and then B, close the gap, right? And we just felt incapable, frankly, of doing that based on what would not be considered a scientific data set, which was just our customers. Right. And so roundabout, oh, I don't even remember the year, but the Amicus Cooperative started the Amicus O&M Cooperative focused on long-term care of the customers. And Amanda Bybee runs that group. She's amazing. And she- um, Amanda on the show. Have you? Okay. Oh, yeah. She sort of coached us. She probably thought it took far too long for us to dedicate ourselves to this sort of customer care concept. I hope that she would view us as being more successful now. You know, But she did a lot of coaching for us. And as that cooperative evolved, some of the members became these national service providers. And we really looked at that question, right? Why is there a gap in what we've provided or told that we've provided and what we are actually producing and said, this is not answerable by us. So who is willing to utilize data from all of their customers to help us understand the answer to this question? And that's really that technology, that data question and the willingness to share and use that became foundational as we interviewed a handful of these providers trying to pick who was going to be our long-term partner. What were some of the ways that just fundamentally from a technological scale approach, you started to see answers emerge in terms of what elements of response or technology became important? In our decision-making process, I think what, what locked us in on who was going to be our long-term partner was there was a couple of groups out there willing to sort of provide a performance guarantee. Well, provide. They were willing to sell you a performance guarantee over the systems that you installed. And what I found was more important than the performance guarantee was because in the divergence between what we sold people and what it produced, there was also systems that performed more. We weren't like mm -hmm. we weren't like bad actors in this space, but it was we wanted to find out for the ones that weren't performing well right. was that they would come through on every single system and sort of confirm for you that you're actually selling the system at the right value. Mm, selling the system. What do you mean? So all the way back to when we sell the O&M service now, they'll come back and say, this is going to produce X. Ah, in terms and of so, the, the actual yield on the system. The yield of the system. And so that, that comes all the way back. So other people weren't as interested in doing that. And so that was really important for us. And that, that exists in, mostly in our CNI space where they're saying like, I'll give you the performance guarantee, but don't tell the customer it's going to be X plus 10. It's going right. to be X. Right. And so that was really helpful to us because that gives us a, almost a free third-party vetting of all of the engineering and everything we've done to make sure that we're in good shape. This is the equivalent of like what the utility industry has, which is like a third-party engineering team that comes in and validates, let's call it a PV system analysis for P50 or P90, right? right. I don't know, like P50, P90, we've talked about in other episodes, it's performance metric or in terms of probability, excuse me, probability of 
hitting the number you said P50 and P90 being obvious at 50% and 90% of what was predicted. How close to like P90, which is considered like hyper bankable, what, what the financing entities looking for, are you able to get now? We're now nailing it, right? So for new systems, wow. since we entered into our relationship, we are outperforming what we were projected almost universally. And, and when we're not, it is, you know, obviously there are equipment failures and other things that are utilities are probably the biggest challenge that we have mm-hmm. in terms of underperformance. And so things like that, that you may not, but in general, save for those sort of extrinsic problems, we are now. But makes sense, right? Because you've got somebody now who, if I'm hearing you right, and I was going to ask about performance guarantees, but if I'm hearing you right, you've got somebody who essentially is stepping in and watching the system for you, taking care of asset management and providing a performance guarantee, for which for the layman means that when a system underperforms, they'll basically cover, they'll hedge the customer's losses, right? Correct. Yeah. And it makes sense that that same service provider would want to provide you with exactly what they're willing to guarantee, right? I can tell you this though, the challenge with it is, and this is a good challenge to have, Mm -hmm. right? I lose deals and Mm -hmm. I hate losing deals. I can only imagine. Can I guess why? Because somebody else tells the customer they're going to make more power on the system. Yeah. I mean, in New York state, for those of us in the solar business, right? New York state, a single axis tracker system, 1350 to 1450 kilowatt hours per kilowatt. That's it's right. just a fact. Yeah. It's a fact. Mm-hmm. But you've got these developers selling to asset owners. Mine's going to make 1750. Liar. Like yeah. you're a liar. And so we lose deals because of those lies. Yeah. But we retain customers because we are now performing the analysis and validating the analysis over time. But Kevin, this is the exact best possible example of what I've been saying throughout the series that we have been an industry and it persists of promise makers. And I'll call that a lot of the promises are bullshit and they're made in PowerPoints, not in power plants. They are meant to move dollars, not mitigate climate change. And this example, and it just underscores the need for education in the marketplace at the asset owner level of the real numbers they need to be looking at, right? Because so many people, because we're still in an industry that is going from early majority to early mass market, right? We're going to have so many more people who are undereducated and a, a low risk threshold, yet somebody walks in with a suit and a great pedigree and they can convince the asset owner. Yeah. I mean, it's an unbelievably perverse dynamic, frankly, in our industry. I, I, I hate to say it, but yeah. in the challenge, I think, because you're a big thinker right? and like I pretend to be a big thinker on TV, the <laughs> idea is, right, as you commoditize an industry like we're trying to do, mm-hmm. right? That's what the ultimate goal here is, right? Every household gets solar on it. It becomes this commodity like your car that everyone needs, right? As you commoditize that, right? Like, yeah, I mean, even Volkswagen did this thing where they overstated the miles per gallon for their diesel cars, right? So it's like, it exists. And so it rubs up against this other industry dynamic in the solar business that I think we have that we think we're unique, right? And I think we are unique in many ways, but we're not unique in the sort of story arc of an industry and the pitfalls that come with the growth and commoditization of any product that basic economics would teach you at any product that actually scales to commoditization over time has these pitfalls and bad actors and things like that. And it's incumbent upon companies that have been here for 
20 years and ourselves at, at the scale we're at, Res and those big companies at the scale they're at to be good actors and make sure that the investors are getting what's promised. Kevin, you've been doing this for a couple of decades. You'll be doing it for a couple more if we're lucky. How do you go really beyond just simple operations and maintenance? Tell me your vision for the future of solar and how will companies need to evolve to thrive in the coming five plus years, meet the needs of that early majority that are waiting for companies like GreenSpark to bring them into the solar revolution? I can only answer that question in the story arc of my vision for the builders out there and who we think we are and where we think we should go as a builder, right? Builders have a problem as businesses. I don't know if you would identify this or if people understand, but for all of the solar installers in the country like me, I know they have this problem, Mm -hmm. which is they have no assets on their balance sheet. And so you have to evolve your business as a solar provider to have assets on your balance sheet in order to grow and scale and build long-term sustainable businesses. You think about the contractors in your local area, wherever you are, it doesn't matter where you are, they all have them. Here in Rochester, we've got these DeMarco and LaChase and all these, these mm-hmm. local companies. And, and they started as brick and mortar builders, right? Maybe they started with a civil space. Maybe they started in the electrical space. doesn't matter. But what they've done over time in order to get out of that contractor's mold is they've added assets on their balance sheet. They started buying real estate. So they they built a mall and now they have lease tenants and they've built this. They own the asset Uh and they have recurring revenue and all this sort of stuff. And so how do we add assets to our balance sheet? Yeah, we're going to, we're building two weeks ago, we got conveyed a property, a brownfield property in the city of Rochester. We're going to move our headquarters over the next couple of years too. And that's a whole nother story. But the whole point is to put an asset on the balance sheet. That's one of the points. That's the business point. So there's this whole change. And so as solar people, right, as battery storage people, as electric vehicle charging people, right, because we've now, those three things are all sort of aligned, right? We're doing those three things, almost all of us, right? How do you put those on your balance sheet and not just sell them to third-party investors and not just sell them to the businesses you own? And so for us, That's the evolution. The evolution is how do you create a more sustainable business by owning some of what you're putting out into the market? You don't have to own it all, but own enough to make sure your business is liquid and sustainable enough over a long period of time. And then now that you own them, you're damn sure going to take care of them. And you're Mm. damn sure going to make sure you put the right products into the marketplace and stuff like that, because you're going to own them yourself. And so I think that's a next big evolution for the contractors. Now, what's going on in our industry, right, is there's a link between development and finance. That's what I see out there. There's development and finance. So the developers are now out raising private equity money to become asset owners, Yeah. right? But mm-hmm. they still have to pull us in to build them. I don't know why you'd skip the step. It doesn't create a true vertical if you don't go all the way across. So for me, that's sort of the way that I would answer the question, that, the way that you asked it. That's where the way businesses need to evolve. And I think doing that creates the ethos of care for your customer because one of your customers ends up being yourself and your own balance sheet. Wow. So I don't know. That's the way I think about the answer to that question. I don't know if that's what you wanted. I think that's exactly what I'm looking for. Kevin Schulte, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to illuminate for us this path to the evolved customer-centric developer, EPC, that cares enough about the way these systems operate, that he builds a company that gives back to the community, cultivates fertile ground for employees, affects climate change, 
and builds something that is durable. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode in this six-part series exploring the future of solar from the Promise Keepers, helping the solar industry cross the chasm and reach mass market success. Many thanks to the expert contributors sharing their insights in this series and to our partner, Omnidian, who helped make it possible. Here's a quick peek at what's coming in the next episode. The set it and forget it myth is the big one for me. The 25-year warranty, nothing ever breaks, don't worry about it. And if it does, we're going to come out and fix it as fast as we can for free. It's just bullshit, right? Everybody knows it. It breaks. Solar stuff breaks. I hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and check us out on the web at mysuncast.com forward slash future of solar, where you can learn more about each guest and dig into the references highlighted in today's conversation. If you're completely unfamiliar with Suncast, well, I'm honored that you've listened all the way through this episode. I've interviewed hundreds of founders, leaders, entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs in the clean energy industry over the last seven years in an effort to help you figure out exactly where you fit in the clean energy transition. If you haven't yet, I'd encourage you to give other Suncast episodes a listen. It's the most comprehensive podcast in existence, documenting the rise of the solar and clean energy revolution from the voices of the leaders brave enough to stand on the front lines. Beyond O&M, The Future of Solar is a production of Suncast Media and is brought to you by Omnidian. They'd also love to partner with you in scaling your solar business. Find out how by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash future of solar. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.